Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. I am your host, Ashley Loeb Blassingame. Today, I will be in the hot seat with my producer, Christiana, interviewing me. We figured it would be fun for you to get to know me before we kick off all the amazing guests we have planned. All right, episode one, let's do this. Welcome to The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name's Christiana, and I'm one of the producers of this podcast. I get so inspired by listening to podcasts. I love listening to stories about people who have overcome very difficult times, great adversity, and can also give that inspiration to others through their story of how they've overcome. So we wanted to create a podcast that did the exact same thing, that was full of stories of courage and inspiration and where we could connect with people on a human level. And so when finding a host for this podcast, we wanted to find someone who had that ability as well. Someone who's really real, who can connect on a human level, who can tell a really good story, but also has that specific story of how they've overcome deep trauma. Because we're starting to find that there's a lot of people who have trauma and that they've experienced, whether it's in their adult life, if it goes back to their childhood. And it's really real. And we really have to deal with the stuff that's in front of us. So why not find a host who's able to do that and also bring some entertainment and give us a good laugh at the same time. So I'm so pleased to introduce our host, Ashley Loeb Blassingame. Ashley got sober in January of 2006. Uh, So she's celebrating 13 years or just celebrated 13 years of recovery this year in January. Congratulations. Thank you. She graduated from UCLA in sobriety. She's the director of Health Tech Women OC the co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery, and is also happily married to a sober husband, and she's a sober mom of two-year-old twin boys. So please help me welcome Ashley Loeb, Blasting Game to the podcast. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This is so exciting and to kind of flip the script that we're planning on having with uh, me as the host. Ashley, quick question for you before we get started and kind of jump into your story. What is the thing that you're the most excited about being the host of this podcast? Oh, gosh, I have to distill it down to one. Okay, so if I had to pick, because I'm excited about a lot of things, I'm really excited about this podcast because I get to pull stories out of people that show the amazing courage that they have had overcoming adversity, um, the fun, the, the joy, the pain, all of it. It's just so real, and we get to talk about it here, and show people that you can change if you want to change, that there is recovery, whether that's for substance abuse or anything other, mental illness, whatever it is. And we get to talk about it here and I get to lead in that discussion. So I'm really grateful for that opportunity. Okay, so let's dive into your story. Okay. You've been through a lot and you've come out of the other side. Mm -hmm. I know you share your story on a regular basis to help others and see that they can recover too. As our host, I really want listeners to have that baseline of exactly where you came from and what you've overcome. Can you give us a little intro into your early life? So, for instance, where were you born? Did you grow up in an alcoholic home? Were there substance abusers around you? Would love to just kind of start from there. Sure, sure. Okay, so I 
I'm, I was born in Providence, Rhode Island. Um, my family, uh, they are all New Englanders and um, go Pats. And uh, I was born to a really loving, good family. I had all the material things that I needed. And uh, my parents were not heavy drinkers. I did not grow up around substance abuse in its purest form. I think there were a lot of people who had addiction, substance abuse traits, the, the kind of isms that we that we talk about. But, you know, there was not a lot of usage or heavy drinking that I grew up around. And so, yeah, so then um, we were in New England and my dad decided to leave finance and move us to Northern California, the Bay Area, so that he could work in um, video games. He actually uh, moved and we he got a job at Sega. And so I was six years, I think I was like six and a half or seven when we moved to Northern California from Boston. And I, I had some early trauma in Boston, but I, I really didn't realize much about that until later. I, I truly believe that I was born an alcoholic. I have the disease of more. <laughs> I, I always wanted to feel differently than I felt. I wanted to be anyone else, anywhere else doing something else. And I never really fit in anywhere. Um, not until at least I got not at least until I got sober. We moved to Northern California and I was put into Catholic school and was a really great, really great school. But I showed up there with uh, curly hair and a Boston accent and not being Catholic. My dad is a Jewish New Yorker and my mom is Protestant from Rhode Island. And the culture, I just did not fit in. I was taught to ask a lot of questions and to have strong opinions. And that was really not welcomed where I was at the time. And it was a pretty painful experience for me where the alcoholism, and I I, want to just preface this and say that I use the term alcoholism, but that encompasses all substances for me. It's all the same, anything that is affecting me from the neck up. So yeah, so that was kind of the start is I had this difficult transition very young and not fitting in. And that's when we started to kind of see my coping skills come out. Okay, so that sounds like a really huge transition for such a young kid. Yeah. Uh, But you're saying that that wasn't the cause of your alcoholism, which is really interesting. And it speaks to the saying that says genetics load the gun and environment pulls the trigger. Exactly. So when did you actually pick up that first drink? Okay, so I had my first drink at seven years old. I stole a beer from my parents' fridge and... Uh, drank it in my closet. It took me a week to finish. And we were, at the time we were living, we had just moved to Northern California and we were living in Foster City in an apartment rental while our, our house was being getting ready. And um, I think it was a really painful transition and I was looking for something to feel better, which is kind of a common thread in my story. And this was something I knew I wasn't supposed to do and and therefore it had attraction to me. And I, you know, I didn't drink ongoing, you know, at that age. That was just my first drink. I very, I remember it very vividly. I don't remember getting drunk or I don't remember the, you know, the change, but obviously there was something attractive to me. And over the years I have uh, memories of stealing cough syrup and drinking that um, as a kid, kind of elementary school era and I think I was just always seeking something to feel differently than I felt. Okay, so let me clarify this. You had your first drink at seven and you drank it in the closet. That's right. So you were literally 
a closet drinker. <laughs> That's right. I was actually a closet drinker. And as we get into my story um, later on, I would turn out to really enjoy drinking in the closet in general by myself. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. Yep. Okay. So going back to what you said, you said that you had this void and that was there was like a pain right there. And so you wanted to fill that void and you you were trying to make that void go away. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? And were you ever able to fill that as a child? So, yeah. So I believe, I believe I was born with a void and, and, and just, uh, you know, there's in, in different recovery communities, some people say, you know, a God shaped hole, you know, in the, the, you know, it's like a different, we have, you know, different groups of, of uh, recovery folk have different ideas around this and I'm just going to go with the void. Uh, I believe I was born with this void and it w- it's a bo- bottomless pit, never able to fill that void. And I tried to fill it with everything I could possibly think of, whether that was beer in the closet, cough syrup, sugar, boys, you know, illicit drugs, whatever it was. And um, that that void is is kind of the underlying basis of my story of of getting sober and and figuring out how to how to feed that piece of me and after the you know the elementary school you know kind of exper- secret experimentation um i started to i hit puberty very young to add you know insult to injury and i um, and i you know i started to feed that piece of me uh, with with male attention and um, I began you know smoking and and drinking more and this was kind of in the sixth to seventh grade range and and it the es- it escalated there was more trouble at school you know people were not people f- people could feel what I, I always noticed the adults could feel that I was out of place or or, or socially you know advancing at a rate that was not uh, comfortable for anybody, including my own family, and that just continued. And then uh, in in middle school, in probably about eighth grade, I started using cocaine with some friends who did not go to my uh, Catholic school, and that sped things up exponentially. Did your parents have any clue that you were <laughs> doing any of this stuff? Great question. So they knew something was up, but they definitely didn't know the extent. There was a lot of sneaking around and lying and. Um, but I was always getting good grades. And, you know, I don't know who was more focused on this, me or them. You know, I at the time, I thought that the pressure came from them. But I actually, in retrospect, think that it it came from me. I was a perfectionist. And, you know, I put a lot of pressure on myself. And and so that, you know, that with the cocaine, you know, it, it cocaine I was, is, is the drug of more. It is... I don't even. I think the high is the feeling of wanting more. That is, in and of itself, the high of never being satisfied. And so, that was the drug that really spoke to me. Um, and you know, we call it our drug of choice. And um, your drug of choice is just whatever fits with your, you know, particular chemical imbalance or balances. And uh, that, for me, even though that wasn't the thing that brought me to my knees and hit to hit my bottom. It was the drug that took me to the next level where things escalated and removed me from experimental stage to real abuse stage of my use. Uh, And I 
was definitely doing that with people who were not using it as a party drug or a social activity. It was a very um, isolating experience. And I, I ended up using alone often and um, using it to function. All right. So this takes us to eighth grade. What happened with the cocaine usage when you got to high school? Because using cocaine in middle school, I mean, that's <laughs> you'll hear sometimes middle schoolers experimenting with with drinking. I know some people will experiment with weed. Like you you hear that you're not happy about it, but you hear that sometimes cocaine is pretty heavy to be experimenting with in middle school. So when you got to high school, where did you go from there? Yeah, it was, you know, it was, <laughs> you know, you look back and it's, it's hindsight's 2020, but it, it was a, it was a, it was a disaster waiting to happen. And that is what happened. Um, I got to high school and I immediately found the people who used like I did and we partied. And, you know, <laughs> when I, when I say party, that's what we thought it was, but really it was it was using together because I don't think that, you know, the other people that I went to school with who did party in high school, they didn't end up where I did. So we thought it was partying, but really it was incredibly heavy abuse. You know, I experimented with methamphetamine. Um, and, you know, it's so funny when I share people talk about I always heard about peer pressure, this story about peer pressure. And I you know, saw it in the D.A.R.E. campaign and people would talk about, oh, you got to resist peer pressure. I'd see this, you know, probably mostly in the media. I have yet to experience peer pressure. I don't I, 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 I looked for it high and low. I was so motivated to hunt down these drugs. I didn't know people who sold them. And I would go and ask around and find them. I once walked like, oh gosh, I don't probably a mile and a half to go to some drug dealer's house. And, 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 you know, I just, I was so motivated again to fill that void. And there was no one standing by me telling me that I should, you know, I should try something. It was, it was motivated by me. So I got, got to high school and started increasing this usage, doing, you know, experimenting with other drugs and I think that I was able to keep it together and you know on the outside for a little while you know mostly freshman year but it it did start to really go downhill from there so I want to kind of go back real quickly it's really interesting that you say that you weren't under any influence from peer pressure because not that I know in, of. Not that you know of. Because in the, I remember D.A.R.E. campaigns whenever I was in eighth grade and dare to say no to drugs. And, right. You know, don't let people influence you. Right. And, and I know I experienced peer pressure, which we're not going into my story, but it, it's such a common thing to experience right. peer pressure. Totally. So it's interesting that you say that you were so motivated that, and then you gave the example of walking a mile and a half to get yeah. drugs. Oh, yeah. No really one was motivated. with you telling you, No, I didn't you, know where to you. find this stuff. You wow. know, I, I, it was like oh, I want to try, you know, I think with the meth, I heard that there was a drug that could make you skinny. And so I was like, well, I'm going to find that. And so that was, you know, I started asking around and people who, you know, you look like you might do drugs, you know, where do I, I probably offended some people in that process. (laughs) But it was, you know, I was, I've always been a very, you know, ambitious, motivated person. And what you find, what I have found is that you take whatever you had 
before and whatever got you to the unmanageability and the powerlessness that you found in your disease of addiction and you you bring that with you so when you get sober you have that too and so you know people who say if you just took all the ambition that you have using and put it to something good you'd you'd accomplish so much Ashley and I, that you know I I was a very motivated user I was very ambitious it wasn't I it, I was willing to work hard to find things it was an interesting looking back on it and looking back on hearing other people's stories of being pressured into things um I, I don't relate to that wow so when did it become clear to everyone that there was a problem so when you were no longer able to hide behind getting good grades playing on all the sports teams kind of keeping up this persona yeah. where people might not have thought that there was as deep of an issue as there was yeah yeah so yeah that was how that was my veil right I I played all sports that were offered literally um which was I think it was seven or eight and I got really good grades I was uh you know I had a position in student government and you know I, I made it pretty on the outside so that people would theoretically leave me alone and after eighth grade, the school that everybody was going to out of eighth grade in my class um, from Catholic school, they were going to the high school and they made you do a like, almost like a, you know, courtesy apply. And in my courtesy apply, I wrote some explicit words after my parents reviewed the application. I went back and wrote some explicit words so that I wouldn't get into the school uh, because I wanted to go to the local public school with my other friends. And so uh, ultimately, I, I didn't get into that school and I did end up at the local public school. And so this was kind of that like there was a down, you know, it was a it was gradual and then it was exponential. So it was this downhill like, OK, I don't want to go to school with these other people. I want to go to school with my friends who are smoking weed and doing drugs and partying. And those happened to be at this other place. Like I was moving in that direction and it could be felt. And at, at the eighth grade, at the end of eighth grade, that was really when my parents knew there was a problem, but they, they really didn't know how deep the problem was. I don't think that they saw, I think they still thought they could turn it around with parenting. And then I started to, at, at one point, my parents, my freshman year, I'm not sure why or how this came about, but I this for my sophomore year, I got moved to an alternative school, which was the coolest thing ever. It's this school for kids who can't make it in mainstream. And it's typically, they have public and private, and I went to a private one. And they start class at 9 a.m. They're out at 3. You have smoke breaks. It's like for delinquent kids, and it was awesome. It was so much fun. <laughs> I loved it. And uh, I don't think everybody loved that I was going there. But so, so I think that was, you know, an indication like, okay, things aren't going well. You're going to a special school. <laughs> I did very well at this special school. I'll have you know. And I just just pulling, you know, as my, as my parents sort of, you know, when we, when we talk about it, like pulling myself out of mainstream, just slowly, just more and more and more, not fitting into peer groups, not fitting into what people are doing, and not in a good way, not in like a, an excessive achiever way, <laughs> you know, just pulling myself out. And, you know, when I went to this school, Mid-Pen, um, which I think is a, I think they've made it not an alternative school now, so if you know of it, it used to be. Um, when I meant, went to Mid-Pen, I saw it as an opportunity, I mean, 
I, it just was another opportunity for me to continue use. I met new people who were using and I had started dating a guy. I dated a lot of guys that were older than I am and I was. And this is a very common story. This is a very stereotypical story for young women and girls who are using and struggle with addiction is that we find this older male figure um, in the process. So I did. And um, my boyfriend, he uh, he was 14 years my senior and we used a lot together and a lot of cocaine and, and, you know, I did. So when we started dating, I didn't know that he was a heroin addict and I had never seen heroin. I'd never come in contact with heroin. Um, but you know, we had been dating a little while and I come to find out that he is indeed a heroin addict and has been for a long time. And my first response to this is to fix him, which, you know, that says a lot about me and my whole life in general, but that's neither here nor there. But um, so my first, I was like, okay, you can't do this. You have a problem, right? We're doing, I'm, I'm doing cocaine probably four or five, six times a day. I do it when I get up. I do it before I go to bed. I mean, I am heavily addicted at this point and I am talking, sitting him down and saying, you know, like you have a problem. We have to deal with this. And uh, we were an interesting pair aside from all the obvious um, things with age and what have you. But, you know, he actually took me to my first Alcoholics uh, Narcotics Anonymous meeting because he felt that my cocaine problem was a very serious problem. And so my first Narcotics Anonymous meeting, I went and I drank a water bottle of vodka in it because it wasn't Alcoholics Anonymous. It was Narcotics Anonymous. Uh, I didn't totally understand the uh what was going on and so it's you know this is the person right so this is this just the crazy insanity this is the person who I'm using with who I'm seeing all these you know complications and we're trying to fix each other because we both think that the other has a drug problem so I'm trying you know talking to him about his heroin problem and how terrible that is and over time I get curious and again this isn't peer pressure that he was not peer pressuring me to use with him but I was curious I wanted to eventually I wanted to try and so he put a needle in my arm for the first time I was 15 years old and I overdosed that first time and I vomited you know it was a terrible experience so I did this this you know experiment was just so unpleasant I could not for the life of me figure out why anyone would do this horrible drug oh my god you just throw up you're itchy you pass out you vomit it's just oh my gosh it's just terrible why would anyone do this I mean really that was that was my reaction to my first experience with this and it it was also really scary Uh, my little sister was there she uh, was involved in a lot of my story and you know I just I said I'll never do that again and of course several months later the curiosity came back and and you know I'm always looking for new ways to fill that void throughout all of this there's always always looking for new ways to fill that void and Three months go by as I'm getting more and more addicted to the cocaine, the, the effects of the cocaine that, you know, this, this more drug, I call it, um, they're starting to wear off. They're starting not to work. The cocaine's starting not to work for me anymore. I can, I can do it and go to sleep. I do a line before I go to sleep. I do a line when I wake up. There's no, it's not working, you know, and, and, and we talk about this a lot in recovery. The drugs were the solution to the problem the drugs and the alcohol are the solution to the problem but then they become the problem 
And that that's this is this this um, you know invisible line you cross, and and I crossed it pretty young, but I, I did cross it, and and the cocaine was now no longer making me feel different. It was just you know part of what I did, and so the curiosity about the heroin came back, and I thought, okay, well maybe I did too much. I'll try. I want to try it again, but I want to do less. I want to do a little, make it so that I won't overdose and maybe I'll have a different experience. And that was kind of my, my downhill, exponential downhill spiral started there. It, I mean, from that point to my first treatment center was, it was a rapid descent, you know, and it, and it started with the use of, you know, IV heroin. Wow. So IV heroin. So you were using needles. Yes. <laughs> from, from a young age. I and mean, you were you were 15, to clarify? Yes. I'm terrified of needles. Were you scared? <laughs> yeah. to- so that's actually this fu- the funny part, right? So people are like, how, you know, how did you do that? That's so terrifying. I'm, I'm terrified of needles. I could never do that. And I've totally heard that from people. I've heard that from people in recovery who never use needles and say to me, oh, you know, I could never do that. I'm scared of needles. Well, I was terrified of needles for a very long time I mean my mom tells stories of trying to give me you know having me get shots and having me run around the uh the the doctor's office and having it be a total scene and totally terrified absolutely absolutely terrified more than my sisters but you know when you are desperate to and this is the level of desperation that that really we feel those of us who've experienced this disease you are desperate. You move that um, that line. You know, we all we all have this line like that. We believe that we won't cross. I would never do this. I would never do this. I would never do this. This line, and you don't know who you are or who you become when that piece of your survival brain is activated. It's a different. You know, it is a piece of you that we in this country, for the most part, many of us are not in touch with this survival piece of you and that was the piece of me that I was operating on and so when my survival was threatened needles didn't seem so bad because the feelings the void that I had was worse it was more painful than the thought of needles which terrified me and so I crossed that line Wow, that's really interesting that you said that because I mean, there's that saying that says that you'll you'll move forward or, or help me out with this with this saying because I'm totally gonna mess it up. But you'll change when the pain of staying the same is greater than the pain of change. Exactly, yeah. and and that actually applied in a negative yeah. way. Right, the pain of staying the same of not using the needles was too big for me because the other things I was doing had stopped working, and this is the story of addiction of alcoholism this is the story it stops working (laughs) I always talk to people about this like you know that you've hit your bottom when you cannot live with it and you cannot live without it that's how you know when you feel that you you are coming to the end you are circling the drain you cannot live with it and you cannot live without it you can't imagine in either direction and it's very, very painful. And that that's really where we get to that place of, of just being out of options. Thank you so much for saying that. That's very eye-opening. It's something that I actually never thought about either in, in regards to kind of coming to the end of yourself. So want to go back for a second. I'm so curious because you said this boyfriend of yours, he was 14 years your senior. Yeah. And yeah. you were a 15-year-old child. 
I was. Okay, so the question that I think everybody, everybody would want to yeah, know. I know it. What did your family think about I this know, guy? I know. Was, did you my bring him around? Your... Yeah. So, oh man, my parents are going to kill me for this being out there. But uh, sorry, mom, dad. So my parents, and this, you know, this is the fear, right? My parents were, yes. My So number one, my parents did know him. Um, they knew him well. I brought him around. I was uh, very precocious to put it nicely I I I did not care what my parents thought about what I was doing that I I that point I was not afraid of them I knew I went and found out legally they couldn't lock me in or out of the house I refused to be grounded I understood that they only had as much power over me as I gave them you found out legally yeah yeah I I went and found out legally they could not lock me in or out of the house so they couldn't tell me like grounding was a joke and you know some people say well your parents should have kicked you know beat your ass or whatever these things but you know there were violent altercations and they they were from me and I was I was just hostile hostile and you couldn't take anything from me you know that was all the normal things that parents do I'm going to take your phone I'm going to blah 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 you couldn't take anything from me that I wasn't I wasn't willing to give up I mean there was a period of time where I preferred to be homeless than you know and we I called it you know we we told ourselves we were camping but you know let's be real and then live in my parents home because I there was nothing I basically stripped myself down to this place of no one can take anything from me I'm in charge because I was so afraid of being hurt and so much there was so much pain and so much anger that I um, that was how I protected myself. I had all these survival mechanisms and and you know when, when I learned when I did get sober and, and we'll touch on that and when, when I did get sober, I learned that these survival mechanisms were in place for a reason when I was a child and I used them to protect myself but when I got to past those stages, they stopped working for me as well. You know, kind of all the same things is it all stopped working. At one point it worked and then it stopped and I did not adapt. That was the piece, like I could not adapt and that was what, you know, took me, took me all the way down. So yes, this boyfriend. So this boyfriend, he was, it sounds really dramatic, but I liken him to being a part of Charles Manson's community where he convinced me of so many things I would do anything for him I you know crossed moral boundaries that I would have never crossed on my own I believed everything he said he just got into my soul and you know I used to watch you know the Charles Manson things where it's like he this man controlled these women he they didn't it was like Stockholm syndrome you know they did not they did things that you know they and the, the law ended up holding him accountable for right and that I can't tell you how many things that happened where he convinced me to do that or he was just incredibly physically abusive incredibly incredibly verbally abusive and then would give you know then gave me love that I I, I thought I would never get anywhere else and it was a really really toxic sick painful relationship that took me a very long time to unravel 
um, and get away from, fully, fully get away from. So at the time, my parents were so afraid that I was going to die that they actually let him live with us. So I was 15 and he lived in my room with us and that was the only way I would come home. And my parents knew that if he lived in our house, that I would come home every night. And so, again, it was a survival mechanism. And, of course, you know, in treatment, you know, there was a lot of questions around this. Why would you do this? And they didn't know what else to do. They also had two other daughters. And um, there was so much fear. And I, I, he and I were very manipulative. Wow. Whenever you are dealing with someone who is in the throes of addiction, it's these types of choices that are the most difficult. How do you go forward? Totally. How, how are you? There's no manual right. that there's says. no manual. How to deal with this. Right. And how do we go forward and function in everyday life? And if we make the wrong decision, will we lose this person? Therefore, we're going to push the limits right. of. The lesser of two evils. Right. Right. Okay. Right. So we either make a stand and she never, she doesn't come home. She's a missing person. She's out there. Or we go against all of our instincts and let him stay here and we know she's home at night. And we can actually sleep at night knowing yeah, like that we she's can know here. she's in this house. And that's the trade-off. Right. Because wow. that was that was the level of control. That was it. So yeah, that was a really uh crazy thing. And and you know, when I was with him, one of the things that so one of the things that happened while I was with him, uh, I had an uh, an ex-boyfriend before him who I um, his mother was a meth addict, and I ran away with her. Yes, that, you heard that correct. Um, I ran away with my ex-boyfriend's mother while still dating a different person. <laughs> and um, and so she and I ran away together. Like, this was the kind of decision-making stuff that I was doing. Um, and part of the reason, you know, I'll tell you a couple stories, which are reasons why my parents felt so strongly about having me in the house. I ran away with her to Mexico. We didn't make it to Mexico, but that was the goal. And and I I hated math. I hated the way that it made me feel. It made just awful, awful, awful. And when I ran out of Coke while I was on this runaway binge with her, I started that's what I started doing. I started doing the meth with her. And, you know, I look back and like I did drugs that made me feel terrible and I did them over and over and over again because feeling terrible that way was better than feeling how I felt without any substances. That was just the level of, of uh, depths of where I was. And um, so she and I ran away. Uh, I have no idea what precipitated me coming home. I know I was a missing person and – I, uh, you know, my parents were looking for me, police were looking for me, and uh, it was it was a big, you know, upset. And somehow someone dropped me off. I was, I had no shoes on, it was three in the morning, and I'm approaching my parents' house, and I see 300 people on the front lawn. And I cannot for the life of me figure out what these people are doing here. And so... I'm terrified and I run shoeless around the back of the house. People are following me. They're still there. They're just staring at me. And I'm telling you, they were there. I saw the 300 people. To this day, I'm telling you, I saw 300 people. 
and I go up to my sister's door her back it was it was a back door and I start pounding on the door and she comes to the door and I'm like let me in let me in freaking out because you know there's all these people standing behind me and I'm terrified and let me into the house and she looks at me and then runs away and uh, what I didn't know at the time she was going to get my parents but my parents had told her not to open the door to just come get them if I came and my dad told me, at, um, you know, not long after that, he told me that he has locks on his doors to lock people like me out of his house because I was so dangerous and untrustworthy that I was the type of person that caused him to lock the doors at night. And, you know, years and years later, I'll remember when he presented me with a house key again to his house. And, um, you know, it's an emotional moment where I became a person that he didn't lock the doors against intrusion. And, and that was where I was. And so that, that, that was my first detox. My, uh, I was taken from, from the house at that point. I said goodbye to my meth-induced 300-people hallucination, and they took me straight to the uh, psych ward. And uh, I detoxed there. There was a, you know, which was a, a really terrible experience, but kind of where I was in my life. And this was still 15, so 15 was a big year. And I... Uh, you know, I got there and I was like, I am never doing this again. I don't want to use anymore. I don't want to drink anymore. I don't want to do drugs. I'm done. I'm done. This is just killing me. It's killing my family. And so I, w- I had, you know, sound resolve to change. And I got out, uh, I think it was a 72-hour hold. I got out a couple days later and linked back up with my boyfriend. He and I went to an Avril Lavigne concert. I could not for the life of me tell you why. Um, I wasn't an Avril Lavigne listener. I don't, I mean, just a, just a bizarre, you know, these things in my story were like, how did that even come to be? But um, that did happen in San Jose. And at the time, um, San Jose was not a hip, slick and cool place. It was a really, uh, downtown San Jose was a dangerous place. It was not a, certainly not a place for a 15 year old girl at night. And uh, we met these guys at this concert. They were I don't know, they were just following us and talking to us. And when the concert ended, they followed us out and we were all walking to the parking lot and I had to go to the bathroom. And so my boyfriend found a bar where I could go to the bathroom. So I went into the bar and these two guys followed us in there. And I went to the bathroom and one of the guys followed me into the bathroom and was talking to me and he was telling me that my boyfriend was going to leave and he was going to leave me. And I, I just, you know you know manipulation and the other guy was out apparently in the bar telling my boyfriend that I was hooking up with this guy in the bathroom so my boyfriend got really upset and he left the bar and so I came out and the two guys were like yeah he left you and I you know again I had 72 hours earlier I'd been in a psych hospital you know had this meth detox I'd been in so much trouble I had this resolve I wasn't gonna drink I was gonna this is I was gonna turn a new leaf and in that moment I was I had all those feelings though all those feelings came up I didn't I didn't have the tools to deal I didn't have the tools to be sober I didn't have the tools not to use drugs and alcohol I I, I had no idea how to deal with life at all 
And so I did what alcoholics do. And I was handed a drink by one of these guys. And, you know, I don't know if something was in it or what the deal was. Um, but I know that, that that's all I remember. Um, the next thing I remember is being helped into the back of a truck, kind of the cab area behind the two seats, the type of truck where there, you know, pickup truck where there wasn't a seat in the back and there's that little space. And so I was put in that space. And I remember that and then I don't remember anything else until uh, what I come to the next day. And I don't know how I knew that they were using meth, but that that is something that I did know. I woke up the next day in a bed in a house I didn't know and all my stuff was gone. No shoes because apparently that's a that the that in the closet or you know my my signature moves and uh I heard a woman upstairs scream oh my god she's awake and I did not wait to find out what that meant I got up I found the nearest door I ran I ran down the street I ran down a major street and I ran as fast as I could for as far as I could until I got to a Safeway and I walked into the Safeway these poor people working at the Safeway oh my gosh if you're listening I'm really sorry I walk into this Safeway and I'm like I don't know where I am. I woke up in a house this morning. My name is Ashley. Can you help me? And I'm like, I'm barefoot. And these poor people working there are like, oh my God, you know, what's happened, right? I'm just traumatizing people. I don't even know. And so I could only remember one phone number. And it was the phone number of a girl I went to middle school with years earlier who I hadn't literally hadn't spoken to in years. And it was her, you know, landline. It was her personal landline. And I called her and I said, Allie, this is Ashley. I know we haven't talked in a long time. I woke up in Livermore and uh, I don't know where I am and I don't know how I got here. Can you please call my parents? <laughs> and I gave her the address. And I literally had to, my parents, when I got, you know, got on the phone with my parents, I was giving them the address of where I was, like what city, trying to figure out, asking other people. I mean, it was just really traumatic. And you know, I, then I got asked to leave school um, from this alternative school. I was a had um, one of the highest GPAs in the school, and I was asked to leave. And it just it kept spiraling from there. Ashley, I'm on the edge of my seat hearing this, even though even though I know that your story ends because you're sitting here, you're alive today in front of me. But I, I mean, you were kidnapped, <laughs> held against your will, ran away. You're Two, three hours away from where you were. Yeah, it was really before. bad. That's, I mean, I, I'm just so glad that you're okay from just this myriad of experiences. And I know it doesn't even stop there. <laughs> so I know that you had a really close call with an overdose. Uh, and this is after this situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, where your family was able, thank goodness, to get to you in time to keep you alive. Because as right. we know, I mean, we've unfortunately lost a lot of people to overdoses and you know that's that's very public now people understand more about right. overdoses yeah now. can you tell me more about what happened there right so after um the kidnapping I really just things spiraled out of control from there um tra- traumatic stories the abuse in my relationship got worse you know, there was physical abuse, but honestly, the mental verbal abuse was so much worse. And I was just an absolute disaster. I started to lose my hair. I broke my foot. We, my, my boyfriend at the time and I, we would, uh, he had a 1979 Volkswagen bus that we would, 
uh, sleep in. And um, we would go to these different shows and different festivals. And, you know, and, and at one of them, I broke my foot and a bone in my foot. And um, I never went to the doctor. I was just crawling around and like hopping around for, I think, like three months. Um, my foot was just, a, it was just a mess. I was so uh, unwilling to ask for help and that was like that was just a perfect example of like I my foot's broken but I'm not gonna treat it because screw you I'm not going to come ask you for help and um, it just went downhill from there and eventually I had a uh, encounter with law enforcement that prompted my parents to send me away to a lockdown facility in Utah private lockdown facility in Utah they have these different levels. At level five is where they have locks on all the windows, all the doors. Like there's different levels that talk about the level of freedom that the people in the facility have. And I was in a level four. So, you know, I didn't go to the bathroom by myself. Or if I did, I had to count and leave the door open. I had three minutes to shower and brush my teeth. You know, there was a light shined in my face when I was sleeping every 15 minutes. Um, at a certain point, I wasn't allowed to wear anything but scrubs and I wasn't allowed to have shoes because uh, I was a run risk. So it was it was a very intense, pretty awful experience, to be honest with you. And um, but I think it kept me alive for that year. So I ended up there and then my parents started to see that something wasn't right. I was not getting better. I was not doing well. And I was I had been there for about nine months um, so at this point, I am almost 17 years old. And I come home, my parents pull me from the program. And again, so I'm thrown back into my life. Now I have no friends in the area because I've been gone for a long time. I've been off the map. And my parents have turned my bedroom into a sitting room because it was so painful just to like leave my bedroom the way that it was that you know, it was clear I was not going to come home. I was not, I, they packed up my stuff. I mean, I was 17 years old and, and that was it. You know, and I, it was, it was a physical, like you do not belong here. You're not coming back here. Uh, but I did come back there. So I stayed in this bedroom that used to be mine and I slept on this pullout couch and it was, it was really terrible. And I don't remember, I was home for several months and there were some really dramatic of, you know, crazy stories, events. And at the end of it, I don't remember getting heroin I don't remember getting needles I don't remember getting anything I don't even remember making the decision to do heroin again but I had been drinking I had come home and started drinking in my closet obviously uh, preferred location and I was you know experimenting with quote-unquote drinking like a normal person this was my idea of drinking like a normal person wine in a closet and so I don't know how I don't know what happened uh, to tell you the truth I other than I woke up from an overdose and with the paramedics pounding on my chest with Narcan in my arm uh, they had cut my shirt off so I was totally exposed and my family was screaming and you know my grandmother had been performing CPR on me because my dad came in to get me for a doctor's appointment and I was blue and still had a needle on my arm and I you know uh, to this day, I cannot tell you how that happened. I don't I, I don't know. I don't remember any of the getting it. And that is just that is so terrifying to me. That is when it, that's more terrifying than the overdose, that the fact that I would relapse, go through that slow, actually not slow, go through the rapid descent of the disease. And it's so powerful that I would 
end up using my drug of choice probably loaded. I probably made the decision while I was loaded and not even know how I got there. You know, people talk about, oh, I'm going to drink again, and, and but I won't use drugs. And the truth is that if you do have this disease, you may not be in control of what you do while you're under the influence. And that was that was the reality for me. So I had this overdose that was incredibly traumatic for my family and not that traumatic for me because I just woke up. I just woke up and to be honest, I was kind of like, man, I'm just sentenced to another day of this life. You know, I'm, oh God, I'm here again. Like, oh, that would, maybe, maybe it would have been over. Maybe that would have solved the problem. And, um, you know, my sister, uh, my middle sister at the time was so angry with me that she actually wasn't speaking to me and did not come to see me at the hospital. Um, and I ended up in another psych ward and, and then I went to another treatment center. And the treatment center I went to um, after the overdose was this place in Arizona called Gatehouse. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. I learned, I was 17 and living in this community of young adults learning how to be sober and I was, you know, taught how to be in a 12-step program, taught how to cook and clean and <laughs> all these life skills that I had completely skipped because I had been using in my life, everything had been so life and death that when I got to treatment, for me, learning how recovery has been about learning how to live like a normal adult. I had no life skills, like real, true life skills. I mean, some of the things I did in sobriety, trying to get these life skills are just horrifically embarrassing and funny. And so Gatehouse was that place that I learned how to do that. But you know what? I didn't stay sober there. I I ran away and I got drunk again because I got into a relationship and couldn't handle the emotions of that. And so it just, that cycle, I, I you know, you you go like you, you wherever you go there you are and there I was in this you know situation where I really wanted to be different and I wanted to get help and I I used that coping mechanism again I ended up at um, this wonderful treatment center called the Meadows after that to do um, work on on you know r- more relationship work because that was the thing that looked like it was keeping me from getting sober I I had, I, you know, I had, I learned how to the day in, the day out life skills, but I really hadn't learned how to process those, the, the emotions and the pain that led me to be in a relationship like the one I had been in, um, which I was still being drawn back to even in recovery and years away. So I went to that and I learned how to have self-esteem and I learned how to create self-esteem and, you know, do self-esteemable acts and I still didn't stay sober Um, I went and lived at a a halfway house and and you know started working as a piercer at this tattoo company and started dating the um, lead tattoo artist who was 17 years my senior and he's actually a you know a good dude and really wanted me to stay sober really cared about my sobriety much more than I did and I did the test I did you know the um there's a saying in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous that says that the great obsession of every alcoholic is that they can drink like a normal person and so I had come to terms with the fact that I had a very serious drug problem but I was still fighting this alcoholism thing like is the alcohol really the problem and so I started drinking trying to drink like a normal person and eventually um, I ended up uh, one day getting some you know being in a horrific fight with this boyfriend and I was living in Prescott Arizona and I got in my car 
in my Jetta and I drove to a part of Phoenix that at the time was basically the skid row of Phoenix, a place, street called Van Buren. And there was a trailer park there. And I went around knocking on all the doors of, you know, the people in this trailer park. And I'm sure that they were as confused and shocked about this whole thing as you are and here I am just going around knocking on the doors and I finally did find someone with heroin because that's what I was asking for but they only had used syringes and it was a time of day where I was not going to be able to get syringes I didn't know the area I um, felt like this was my only option and I had that desperation of that void and those feelings and I could not deal with them so I uh, used junky folklore of um, pumping through using Clorox and pumping through the syringes 10 times and you know said a little prayer and hoped it worked and so I also was trying not to overdose in this situation and so I shot up probably about 25 times total um, in each arm uh, small shots of heroin so that I wouldn't overdose you know I was trying to pace myself and what ended up happening is I lost my vision and my hearing for a period of time, um, which was really terrifying. And being in this place I didn't know with people I didn't know. And then I uh, blacked out and woke up, you know, what would have been hours later back in Prescott, which is two hours north of Phoenix, with two guys in my house that I didn't know who they were, how they got there. My car was gone and my boyfriend was banging on the door getting in and I was in a fight with one of the guys because he had taken the heroin from me. And I was fighting with him because I could no longer give myself drugs. My arms were frozen and bent out in front of me. I had infected all the veins in my arms and it was incredibly painful to move them. I could not move them. And so... You know, this was where I, this was my bottom, so to speak. Um, I, I had rendered myself incapable of giving myself any more substances. I was completely incapable. I was reliant on another human being to get me high. And it just, I mean, there was just no other way to show me so deeply and painfully that it was no longer working that I could this was just not working and my boyfriend called my mom and my mom flew in and I was in the hospital and you know my mom who doesn't cry very often uh, sat next to the bed and I'll you know never forget this and she looked at me and she started crying and said are you going to make me bury you and you know she had said things like that. People had said things like this to me for so many years, but I was so tired of, you know, that was the overwhelming feeling of just being tired, you know, as we say, sick and tired of being sick and tired. And I I just was like, I'm not living, I'm not dying. I'm not dying. I'm living in this horrible purgatory and I don't want to do this anymore. I just don't want to live like this anymore. I'm killing everybody else. I'm killing myself, but I'm not even dying. It's just torture. And so I, uh, that was kind of the, the change for me. And after that, I, you know, I knew what to do, how to get sober from all of the treatment I had been through. And so that was when I started to put that into place. I don't even, there aren't even words. I was already on the edge of my seat hearing about your overdose and hearing about everything that brought you up to that point. And then it seemed like kind of circling back to 
what you said towards the beginning of the interview that it, it was that that relationship it was the toxic relationship that then triggered out of nowhere you to go searching for heroin and then that desperation where you would knock on someone's door who you didn't even know use a dirty needle that you cleaned with chlor. I mean, it, it it's just absolutely heartbreaking to hear everything that you went through and just the level of desperation that you were at as a human being. I mean, this must have been really tough on your family. Yeah, it was horrible for my family. I mean, I, you know, we, I am part of my recovery is being a living amends. You know, there's not a sorry or an amend verbally that I can make to my family for what I have put them through. But I, um, every day when I wake up clean and sober and I function and give back as a clean and sober adult and a, and a productive member of society, I am saying I am making amends for what I have done um, and what, you know, what happened in my family, you know, um, they're they're the best they have supported me and and you know eventually I got my relationship back with my sister and and my relationship is wonderful with my parents and they learned in this process they had to learn about the disease of addiction and you know it's painful it is a it is a devastating disease to um, the person experiencing it and and the families so Ashley can you talk to us about getting sober and your journey into recovery Yes, absolutely. So I left Prescott, Arizona on September 1st, 2006. Um, When I say left, I mean run away. (laughs) I just, I called my dad and was like, I have to get out of here. I am not going to survive and stay sober. I just knew I wasn't going to be able to stay sober there. And I packed up my three bedroom house. God bless Arizona. It's cheap as dirt. And um, I moved in with a friend who I'd met through that that tattoo artist boyfriend who I knew was sober in Laguna Hills. And my dad and I drove a U-Haul truck with my uh, Rottweiler tattoo and uh, with all my stuff. And then I drove my Jetta in front of him and the Jetta's engine blew on the way to California from Arizona. And we ended up having to get the Jetta towed away. And so when I came to Southern California, I had no car. So I moved into the den of my friend's place with my three-bedroom worth of furniture and my Rottweiler. And my queen bed, the den's doors closed on. They touched the end of the queen bed. That's how small it was in there. And um, I'm super grateful for that experience and for that place. It was a wild ride. And uh, we will get Emily on the show to uh, to talk about it. So that'll be fun. Um, so I moved in with her. And I think that it was a blessing that I didn't have a car. I think I may have gotten afraid and, and run away again had I been able to get away. But I wasn't. And I told myself that I was just going to give it another shot, Alcoholics Anonymous and recovery, that I was going to really, truly, 100% do this thing someone else's way. Um, I had never done that before. You know, I'm a person who tends to, I'll do it 95% your way, 98% your way, 99.9% your way, but I'm going to add my flair to it. And I needed to do it 100% somebody else's way in order to really get the recovery that I I ended up having and do have now. And Emily took me to my first 
Southern California Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, and oh my gosh, it was spectacular. We went to this really she-she sexy meeting in Laguna Beach. It was September 1st, 2006, and a meeting called the Talk Show Meeting, where they interview someone. It's an interview format, and they, you know, they have a, a raffle, and it's, it's really, really funny. Uh, really fun, a, a lot like a late show format. And so this is my first meeting, and uh, I got a commitment there. And actually, I met my husband there. I didn't know he was going to be my husband, but he had a commitment there. And, and at the time, we both had, you know, he, he was in a relationship and with a lovely woman. And, you know, we didn't end up seeing each other then, but I, I that was the first time I met him. And I the women and the people of Alcoholics Anonymous just loved me until I could love myself. They opened up their arms and they're, you know, I was really intimidated coming into Orange County and all these beautiful people and, oh my gosh, how was I going to, you know, was it going to be, you know, my experience had been women were really competitive and backstabbing and I just had this totally different experience where they just invited me we had so much fun I was 19 years old and I had no I hadn't finished high school I had no idea what was I was going to do with my life I I had been a piercer in Prescott for you know the years preceding so that was like my way (laughs) that was my occupation and I got here and I started to dream again and I started to see that things could be different and and just felt like I was in the right place uh, I went to meetings. I went to um, conventions, young people's conventions, dinners, bowling. We went to raves, and we a sober group of us would go to raves. And for my 21st birthday in sobriety, I took a bunch of my friends, and we jumped out of a plane. And, you know, it was fun. We had so much fun. We stayed out late, and people didn't know that we were sober because we were partying we were doing all the things we were having so much fun and just so alive it was such a beautiful time in my life it was hard there were a lot of hard things there was a lot of 19 year old related drama with boys and friends and who said what but you know all the normal stuff and I I grew as a person and I started in community college studying political science and kind of got back on my feet and, you know, moving in a direction of where I had always truly wanted to go. And my dream was to go to UCLA. I didn't really see that as a possibility at the time. But I just started trucking along in in, uh, in community college and, you know, got jobs and went to meetings and took care of myself and learned how to be sober. It was a tremendous, tremendous experience and time in my life. And I attribute that to creating the foundation of my sobriety. One thing I do want to address that in the first few years of my recovery, um, when I was building that foundation, I still grappled with the thought that maybe I wasn't an alcoholic. And I have this story. I was actually talking to my sister about it last night. It was a turning point. You know, there's all these turning points in recovery. And that's why recovery is this vast subject to cover because it's just life with this disease, this disease in our head. And it doesn't go away. So you're just learning how to live with it without the substances, you know, how to fill that void with positive things and use those ambitions towards uh, positive and joyful goals. And in my first couple years of sobriety, I that obsession about whether or not I could drink like a normal person again was really intense. I still... <laughs> Yeah, I joke with my my sponsor, my friends, and my parents. Like, I still questioned whether or not I was an alcoholic. Now, you guys have just heard my story, so that's ridiculous. But that is the that is my truth. And 
I made the commitment to myself that I would not drink until I was 100% sure one way or the other whether or not I was an alcoholic. So I was going to stay sober during that time while I was figuring it out. And one day my youngest sister came to visit me, Tori, and we were talking and she was telling me a story. She was in young high school, maybe, maybe 14. She was telling me a story about when we were young and she, you know, I was in middle school and and then in high school and she was telling me about how she used to crawl into my bed and move the bottles of the water bottles out of my sheets, move them around. And this was just in passing conversation. Oh, I would get in your bed and I would move the bottles out of the way. And it triggered memories for me that I had not thought about. I mean, maybe even ever that I had all these water bottles full of vodka in my sheets for years because I would drink them at night. I would drink them when I woke up. But it was so normal, like brushing your teeth that I didn't even remember or think about it. It's like if someone asked you, remember all the days that you brushed your teeth when you were 13 years old? Well, I don't remember. I mean, I know I did it, but I don't remember that. It was so uneventful and it was so uneventful for me to drink and drink alone and drink in my bed that I did not remember that until my sister mentioned it in a story she was telling me and it blew my socks off and it triggered so many memories, so many days of drinking. I drank all the time. I was a raging alcoholic. I wasn't just a person who used drugs and sometimes drank as well. I was a raging alcoholic and I didn't remember that. As a result of this conversation, I uh, obviously ended up staying sober. I I made the decision to continue to stay sober. And that turning point of admitting to my innermost self that I was an alcoholic really changed the game for me because there were no back doors. There were no trap doors. There were no ways out of this anymore. I knew it was all the same thing and I knew that in my innermost soul and it changed my recovery. It changed the questions in my head. That's incredible to hear that you still struggled with whether or not you were an alcoholic yeah. after everything Crazy, right? you've been Crazy. through. I know, I know. And I think you're right. I think hindsight's twenty twenty. So it's easy for myself and for our listeners to say, well, of course you were. Right. You know, it's, we're literally listening to all this. And, right, and like I'm laying it out. So obvi- it's obvious now, but at the time, not so much. Right. So I think what that says absolutely to me at least is this disease is a disease and it's very powerful it's a disease of the brain and it affects your thinking and it's just so interesting that it took after you you said it was a couple years you really grappled with it yeah I think I was like two years sober when we had this conversation wow and it took your little sister talking about something that triggered something that went to you again kind of memories the memory yeah saying that it was so it was just like brushing your teeth yeah I had no I, I had no recollection of this because it was just I mean I knew I mean I remembered in high school drinking at school you know there were things but I didn't remember how commonplace like that was the thing that it triggered like I didn't remember that it was very very normal for me to have bottles of water bottles of vodka in my bed wow and then she is sitting here as a kid thinking yeah these are water bottles and what's funny was when we had the conversation we had the conversation last night she said I didn't know that it was vodka (laughs) she she thought I was hydrating (laughs) which I thought was great I was like oh well at least you know a little less traumatic for her so that's good (laughs) 
<laughs> it's a, a a few levels up from right. you know just stealing liquor out of your parents cabinet. right right, <laughs> right exactly there were a lot of things when I got sober that I was really concerned about um one of which was like you know things things I thought about getting sober how will I ever have fun again a big one was what will I do at my wedding how like what how am I going to toast at my wedding what am I going to do for my 21st birthday? How am I going to, you know, what am I going to do if? How am I going to enjoy this? How am I going to blah? Like all these different ifs, you know. And it was so funny. My sponsor at the time when I when I was telling her like all the reasons why, you know, I don't know. I didn't know if this was going to, this sober thing was going to work out. And uh, she said to me, she, you know, and I was worrying about what I was going to drink at my wedding. And she said to me, um, Ashley, do you have someone banging down the door to marry you? <laughs> and I was like, well, No. Well, why don't you worry about that when you find someone who wants to marry your hot, me- hot mess of an ass, you know? <laughs> and uh, and I, I thought it was like, yeah, okay, that's fair. And years later when my husband, who's also sober, and when we were getting married and we were sitting with the, the planner and she was talking about like what the signature cocktail would be, I had this flash to being 19 and being so concerned about this moment. And of course, at the, you know, when it, when it actually came down to that moment, I had my mom pick because I had no idea what the, you know, I don't, I don't drink like that, you know, this mixed drink situation in a glass. I don't know what's happening. So, uh, you know, I had her pick with the, with the you know, we toasted with Martinelli's and it was no big deal. But of course, <laughs> these were, you know, these were things that may or may not have just blocked me from sobriety. You know, they were, they were significant questions in my mind about whether or not this was going to work out for me. And uh, the truth was, was that I had, that all the things that I was so worried about came and went and they worked themselves out wonderfully I had you know my 21st birthday like I said I jumped out of a plane with my friends because I couldn't figure out what crazy thing I hadn't done you know I had done so much that it was like oh well I haven't jumped out of a plane let's do that of course and my mom was like after everything you survived through this is how you're gonna you know I was like sorry mom um so you know we we just did so much cool stuff in those years and I ended up, you know, I worked through community college and I applied to several uh, the UC schools in, in California and um, ended up getting into UCLA, which was crazy, and uh, moved to Los Angeles and um, studied and, and graduated from UCLA. And just a, one of those things where there's just no way I could have ever done that loaded and, and being supported in recovery, the 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 self-care, all the things that I learned led me to be able to even function at that level. And UCLA is a tremendous school and it was a tremendous experience. And um, and then my then boyfriend, now husband, and I moved back to Orange County and started our life here and got married in 2015 in, uh, in Idaho. And in 2017, I gave birth to uh, fraternal twin boys and they will get to grow up with sober parents as long as we stay vigilant and and work our programs and and our recovery and make it number one in our lives you know even even the scary thing is even making that recovery and putting that in front of your family because if your family comes if your recovery does not come first everything you put in front of your recovery you will lose I was taught that very early on and I do believe that and, you know, having kids is a wonderful experience and it's also a very trying experience in recovery, uh, particularly twin boys. And, um, and I've had to work much harder in the last few years 
having the twins and this whole big, beautiful life, I've had to work so hard to find that time for self-care and make it a priority and remember that all the things that I have today are as a result of the work that I have done over the past 13 years. And that if I stop doing that work because I want more time at the gym or I want you know more time hanging out with the kids or whatever my reasons or rather excuses are, that I put all of the things that I have gained at risk. Ashley, that's a such an amazing story it's really truly a story of the will to survive against all odds and not only have you survived but you've turned that into thriving and learned and given us amazing examples on how you can have a full life in sobriety not just a life and just kind of going along and missing out on fun but learning and experiencing the different ways that you can have fun, that you can connect, that you can grow a community and have a family, even though twin boys, that must be a little... <laughs> it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. <laughs> so it's, you've gone from one chaos yeah, to another. It's like, it's, like a, it's like a circus at my house. <laughs> I have a um, South African Mastiff, a Borble, and uh, the poor guy, I mean, he's like, what happened here like we were all doing fine and then you brought home these twins and um, it's just crazy it's so good and it's so wonderful and it's terrifying and I feel great about the fact that my kids are going to grow up with sober parents and I also feel terrified that they are going to have the genetics and and I have to stay right where my feet are you know I have to remind where are my feet they're right here they're recording this podcast that's what's happening stay in the present moment and if I can do that then I stay in the joy of life and the moment I move away from that I am now in the fear right similar to what you were saying about when you were first getting sober and you were concerned about what you were going to do at your wedding totally ridiculous absolutely no one wanted to marry me I don't know what that what I was worried about and and uh you know the all the things I worried about getting sober it's so funny because I wasn't. Ha- I was so worried about having fun and sobriety, or doing, you know, getting married, or doing all these things. None of which were on the table when I was using at all. Uh, I wasn't having fun. I wasn't, you know, gonna have <laughs> get married. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't gonna make it to my twenty first birthday. I mean, all these crazy. But you know, that's that's the disease. It's the only disease that tells you you don't have a disease, and it's just. It's one of those things you cannot fight alone because you will convince yourself, you know, we have that, we have a built-in forgetter. We forget the pain and we relive it over and over and over again. And it's not until you're in a community of people who understand and you do the intense work that you're able to get out of that cycle, to stop the cycle for you and your family. Absolutely. That's such a great point. I want to just ask you one more thing before yeah. we end this podcast. Yeah. Uh, if there's someone out there who's listening who is struggling, yeah, um, maybe they're struggling with whether or not they are an alcoholic. Maybe they're struggling with I the same questions that you were asking yourself. Right. Maybe they're right. asking themselves. Um, can you give someone just a, a piece of wisdom on if they are struggling, what could a good first step be? So a good first step is to reach out to somebody who knows how to be in recovery, someone who's done it, someone who knows how to do it. So find someone, whether that's a a community, Alcoholics Anonymous, a 12-step program, smart recovery, a treatment center, call and talk to someone who knows and understands what you're going through. 
that will be the first step. Being honest about that, um, hearing the advice and the path of other people, listening to the stories and what other people did to change. You know, you cannot fix your broken brain with your broken brain. If it's just you helping you, sorry, but you're screwed. So you got to find other people who know how to move through the things that you are dealing with, who've, who've done it, who've walked the path before you. Find those people, ask them how they did it, and do what they did. Do it 100%. If you want what they have, do what they did. Do what they do. I, I am personally, this is not a pitch for Alcoholics Anonymous, but I am personally a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And the people there have you know, embraced me and helped me through trying times. And if you're concerned about the God aspect, which is a huge stumbling block for many people, I totally get that. It was for me as well. And I just ignored it, literally just ignored it. And I just made God group of drunks or good orderly direction. And I prayed to good orderly direction or group of drunks. And that was my higher power. And that was the best I could do. So you don't have to be religious in order to participate in 12-step programs. I know that's a common feeling that people have, and it's just um, that hasn't been my experience. If you feel like you need treatment, reach out to somebody. You know, there's, oh my gosh, there's so many amazing treatment centers. Reach out, call, ask for help. Ashley, that's such great wisdom. Thank you so much. Guys, this is Ashley Loeb Blassingame. She is your podcast host for The Courage to Change a recovery podcast. We're so excited. I cannot I'm so excited too. wait. I'm I'm just sitting here trying to get this information pulled out of you, but you're honestly, the way that you connect with people and just the stories that can come out of it and and also just how kind of how deep you go in in addressing real things, but in such a human way. I just cannot wait for this podcast just to keep getting published and and every other week for these stories to keep coming out guys you've got to tune in subscribe to this podcast tell your friends about it these inspiring stories are just going to keep coming and i hope that you've had an incredible time hearing uh, ashley's story of not only survival through difficult times but also in hearing her courage to change and how she's been able to overcome the trials and the adversity in her life and now be all these amazing things, a mother, a wife, a business owner, a UCLA graduate, the director of Health Tech Women OC. I mean, you've accomplished so many amazing things and we're just so excited to have you as our host here. Thank you. I'm really excited and looking forward to this experience and I hope that uh, we can bring so much inspiration and joy and entertainment to all of our listeners. So thanks for having me. The Courage to Change, a recovery podcast, would like to thank our sponsor, Lion Rock Recovery, for their support. Lion Rock Recovery provides online substance abuse counseling where you can get help from the privacy of your own home. For more information, visit www dot lionrockrecovery.com backslash podcast. Subscribe and join our podcast community to hear amazing stories of courage and transformation bi-weekly.